0: Hey, well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. Great to see you. Welcome to those of you joining us online. If this is one of your first times joining us, I just want to express a very special welcome to you. And if you'd like to learn more about who we are, you can certainly do that. And the way you do that is by taking one of those communication cards that you can find on the seat back in front of you, complete that communication card, and I hope you have some free time afterwards. Come see me at the Welcome Center. We have a free gift for you just for joining us this morning For those of you joining us online, you can go to our website at vlchurch.com and click on the banner that says, Are You New Here? Fill out that form. It'll come straight to me, and I'll connect with you sometime this week. But indeed, thank you for joining us uh, as well. I just have one reminder this morning. I mentioned it last week. We're having a youth group event tonight entitled Water Wars. Pastor Peter wanted me to remind each and all of you about this very important event. It really is an outreach event to invite kids that don't have a youth group here in our community. And so youth group will start at 6 p.m., and then water wars will occur right after youth group. And you might be asking yourself, what is water wars? Well, just imagine a bunch of water guns, water balloons, and all things water with no holds barred. Just be Just be glad they're not playing with fire, you know what I mean? So they're going to have a lot of fun. So encourage your youth to invite a friend tonight. It's going to be a great time and a lot of fun, and, uh, you know, it's going to be a really cool thing. And we also ask each and all of you to pray for God to use this event tonight so that people can uh, come to know him. that might not have a church home, might not have a youth group. And so uh, that's what Water Wars is all about uh, this evening. We hope that uh, our youth will come. That's all I have this morning in the way of updates and announcements. If uh, you've come to worship the Lord Jesus with your tithes and offerings, you know what to do and how to do it. You can give online, you can give via text, or you can give as you exit the sanctuary this morning. But indeed, thank you for worshiping the Lord with your tithes and offerings today. Can i ask you to stand this morning, and as you do so, let's bow for a word of prayer together. Let's pray. Father God, I'm reminded of what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman when he sat down with her at Jacob's well. Jesus said, whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst again because it will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. God, may that living water flow here in this room today. We ask for your Holy Spirit to fill this place And may all in here be reminded that when we drink from your well, we never walk away thirsty, but always satisfied. And so we come to you now, Lord Jesus, asking for you to give us a fresh taste of how you always quench our thirst as we worship you now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: Amen. Let's worship this morning. Yeah, you can put your hands together. There's a fountain, I know where blessings overflow, where living water runs free from the mercy seat. There's a joy I know deep inside my bones, a never-ending well, where I thirst no more. Rejoice, rejoice, my soul. Rejoice, rejoice, my soul. i okay. separate. I'm forever held by His amazing grace. Rejoice, rejoice, my soul, oh. Rejoice, rejoice, my soul. Singing praise the Lord. Jesus came for me, set me on my feet, and now I'm singing. Shame, so I keep singing. Oh, praise the Lord. Jesus came for me, set me on my feet, and now I'm singing. Oh, praise the Lord. By the power of his name, I'm free and unashamed. So I keep Couldn't hold a man, that can't hold me. I'm alive in Christ; He's alive in me. Oh, I'm alive in Christ; He's alive in me. Singing praise the Lord. Jesus came for me, set me on my feet, and now I'm singing praise the Lord by the power. Sometimes I'm weak, sometimes I fall in my wandering, but through it all, there's just one thing more precious than. to know that God's grace has been poured out upon us. It has been. And we oftentimes say in its simplest form, it means grace is something we get that we don't deserve. And it's true. God's given us what we don't deserve. We deserve death. And in His mercy, He did not give us death. But in His grace, He gave us life by sending His Son to die on a tree instead of us. That's the grace of God. Aren't you thankful this morning? We have eternal life because Jesus chose to come to this earth. And he chose to bear our sins. And he chose the cross. His grace is poured out. And it is an amazing grace. Oh, yes, it is. We have reason to praise this morning. And, you know, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father right now being glorified because of his work that he's done here for you and me. The psalmist says this, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp and the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work, the work of his grace. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. How great are your works, O Lord. How great is our God this morning. We worship him. We praise him. Can you do that from your heart today? Because he is worthy. Let's thank him for his grace and tell him just how great Splendor of the King He's clothed in majesty Let all the earth rejoice All the earth rejoice He wraps himself in light And darkness tries to hide trembles at his voice trembles at his voice let's lift our voice how great he's our God sing with me how great
2: Oh, Lord Jesus, it is good to sing of your greatness today. It's good to do one of the most humbling acts that we can do as human beings and lift our voice and song. It's good to celebrate what ought to be celebrated. It's good to magnify what ought to be magnified. It is good to glorify the one who ought to be glorified. For, Lord, when we place ourselves under your mighty hand and worship, O oh Lord, the things of earth grow strangely dim. The problems and the concerns of everyday life, Lord, are erased in the light of your glory. For your greatness has been displayed and your goodness to us is new every morning. Lord, we thank you for your greatness today. And Lord, we ask that as we glorify your name, the things of earth would grow strangely dim. That we would be reminded that we have been loved by you with a great love. And your grace, your unmerited favor is waiting for us. Your grace, your unmerited favor is something you want to pour out upon us. How great is our God that in spite of all the things that we came to this place with today, he wants to pour out his grace and favor. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that. And we pray that all that we do and say in this place would bring glory and magnify the greatness of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. all God's people said amen amen God bless you you may be seated well if you are a young disciple and didn't catch some of the uh, communication on the way in the door this morning you are welcome to be dismissed at this point this is the wrap-up today for the fruit of the spirit down the hall And uh, it seems like everybody got the memo, because no one is moving. So that's wonderful. Welcome to Victory Life Church once again. I'm Pastor Matt. I'm so glad to be able to share the Word of God with you this morning. We are going to be in Romans chapter 5, the second part today. We were in the first part of Romans chapter 5 last week. And we talked about all the great benefits of being saved justified, having received the gospel, however you want to put it. We talked about all of the great benefits, the peace, the gracious peace we have with God. Not only are we reconciled to him, but he wants to pour out his favor, his grace upon us. We talked about the fact that we have the hope of glory. One day that we can stand in the presence of God, but not only that, but rule and reign with him as we were designed to do from the foundation of the world. We talked about the joy of knowing just how loved we are, that While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And finally, we talked in verse 11, where we're going to start today, about the fact that we have joy in God himself, that relationship with God is the greatest gift that we humans can can have, and that through Jesus Christ our Lord, we have that gracious and awesome gift to be back in relationship with our God and Father. Paul's going to turn the page this morning. He's going to take us somewhere different, but... In the Greek, or in the original language of the New Testament, it's very clear he's still on the same path of thought. Now, we're going to read all about Adam's sin and Christ's work today, and we're going to go, really? The first part of uh, Romans 5 is connected to the second part of Romans 5? It seems like Paul's getting into some great, big, and deep theology about the history of salvation, and we were just talking about all the good things in knowing Jesus. Well, it's a really There is something that connects them. There is something that links all of chapter five of the book of Romans, but I'm not gonna tell you what. We're gonna see what links these two portions together at the very end of our time together. In the meantime, we need to take a look at one of the greatest theological concepts in all of scripture, the idea that through one devastating act, humankind was changed forever. Human history was written, but through one awesome, powerful, incredible act. On the part of our Lord Jesus Christ, human history was rewritten. And we're going to talk today about how much greater the work of Christ is than the work of death that is going on among us. Why don't we pray and ask the Lord to give us clarity today. Heavenly Father, we are wading in deep waters of theology this morning. Lord, I personally never feel up to the task when deep in the book of Romans, Lord, I pray that you'd give me clarity in the speaking and your people clarity in the hearing, because, Lord, as we continue to hear your good, good news and what you, Lord Jesus, have done for us, it creates a path by which we can share with others what you have done for them. So, Lord, help us to dive into your word today with all types of excitement and anticipation that one day we'll be able to share with another what we hear today in church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, one of my favorite movies of all time, which also happens to be one of my wife's favorite movies of all time, which if you know us, we have nothing in common, uh, is The Sandlot. Anybody ever seen it? It's a pretty good movie. It's this story of a young boy who moves into a new town and he wants to make friends with the neighborhood kids, except he's a bit of a nerd and he's never played baseball, but he is welcomed into this group of friends and eventually makes the biggest mistake of his young life. You see, one day when there is no baseball left to be played with, he goes into his dad's or stepdad's office and takes from the pedestal a ball signed by none other than Babe Ruth and takes that ball out to play with in the sandlot. Well, if you've ever seen the movie, you know that he doesn't know who Babe Ruth is, but the other eight boys certainly know who Babe Ruth is. In fact, I looked up the value of a Babe Ruth signed baseball. The last one sold for $388,000. It's a very expensive baseball. Baseball. But the the sentimental value of such a thing would be far greater than the cost, right? I mean, Babe Ruth is synonymous with baseball, but this young man, of course, doesn't know. A home run is hit into the yard of the beast, the largest bull mastiff dog that you have ever seen, that all the neighborhood boys are terrified of. And they realize immediately that not just the boy who brought the ball is in trouble, but when they hear that it was signed by Babe Ruth, they realize they're all in trouble. They are implicated in the great sin that this young man has committed. And the rest of the movie is them trying to get the ball. Well, of course, the the beast eats the ball, chews on the ball, regurgitates the ball, buries the ball, to the point where that Babe Ruth baseball is unrecognizable from the moment it went over the fence. And towards the end of the movie, they realize that they are in deep trouble. And of course, something amazing happens. It just so happens that the owner of the beast has a Babe Ruth baseball in prime condition that he trades them for the one with bile all over it. It's a great trade. They're not deserving of it, but it is the trade that is made. It's greater than the sin that was committed because who really would give up a perfect condition Babe Ruth baseball to a bunch of idiot kids, but that's what Darth Vader, I mean James Earl Jones, does. (laughs) He was a good guy in this movie. It's a great benefit, it's a great work, it's greater than their mistake. And of course, all things are made right. Well, Paul's going to tell us about this great sin that has been committed in which we are all implicated in today. He's going to tell us how a greater work of grace has taken place to make sure that we are no longer implicated in that sin, that God has made a way for it all to be better. But just as importantly, Paul does something grammatically, for those of you English teachers in the room, you're welcome. Here we go. You're going to see it at the end. Paul does something grammatically to let us know that all the benefits that we saw from having received the gospel last week factor right in to how Christ is greater than Adam this week. And that's where we're going to land today after we talk about this great, horrible act of history replaced by this great, gracious act of history in Christ and then why it matters for the theology that Paul has been weaving in Romans chapter 5. So a message in three parts today. We're going to talk about that terrible act, that wonderful, gracious act, and then what links it all together together. In order to see it, though, we have to back up into last week's final verse, verse 11, and we'll be reading through verse 17 today. If you can follow along in Romans, you're a smarter person than I am, so if you don't understand it all at first, that's okay. Verse 11, more than that, Paul says, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now let's get into what Christ did to reverse all this. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in a life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So we are introduced here to that theological concept that many of you have heard of, perhaps in your getting-to-know-Christianity course that you took once upon a time, or maybe in Sunday school if you grew up in church, of original sin, The idea that our first father, Adam, sinned and introduced sin and death into the world. Another way the Christians put this is the fall of mankind. The fall from this state of grace that we lived in within Eden. Others in modern times sometimes call it original death. That Adam sinned and therefore, as Paul says, all died. It's a pretty stinky deal. That our first ancestor was placed upon this earth and chose something that we didn't choose for ourselves, but implicated all of us. Now, I don't think there's anybody in this room today that wouldn't say at some point we implicated ourselves in the crime. I don't think there's anybody here today that says, I have not sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Most of us would say, yes, I've implicated myself in the crime leading to death by my own volition. But the idea that sin and death entered the world through... One man, says Paul, is indisputable in the basis of theological history. It's a pretty stinky deal, but that's what it is. Adam brought the Babe Ruth baseball, but all of us spend our lives trying to get it back over the fence. That's the story of original sin. Now, to understand this story of original sin, we need to go back into the idea of what took place there in the garden. Adam was given three commands. One, that was negative, and two, that were positive. You may know them just by the fact that you've read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and maybe even four, 300 times since you've been a Christian. You know, it's usually in January when you say, I'm going to read through the Bible this year, and then you get to the flood, and then you're like, I'm going to go back to John. But anyhow, you've all read it a lot, and you've probably forgotten some of it, but Adam was given three commands. The first command given to Adam was be fruitful and multiply. I'm sure he wasn't protesting that one. Second, Adam was told to fill the earth and subdue it. In essence, he was told by God, you get to rule and reign over some of my stuff. That's part of being created in my image. I'm giving you a world to reign over. In fact, there's this awesome moment in Genesis 2 where God is bringing all of the animals before Adam and saying, Adam, name them. Well, to name something is to take ownership of something, to say that that belongs to me, in the same way that the angel told Joseph to name Jesus, accept Jesus as your earthly-born son, even though he's truly from heaven. That, that Adam names all the animals. You are taking ownership. So God's bringing the animals before Adam and saying, you have dominion over them. Partner with me in ruling the world, why don't you? That's a pretty good, pretty good command, right? And then there was one final command. Do not, here's the prohibition, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now that's, that's tripped me up for a long time. Why not just the tree of the knowledge of evil? Wasn't Adam inherently good? And the answer is no. Adam didn't know the good, nor did he know evil. What did Adam know? Adam knew God. Because the minute that Adam knows good, Adam will know that he will choose not to do it. And the minute that Adam knows evil, it's assured that Adam will choose to do it. See, there's not just a prohibition nature to unrighteousness. It's not just the things that we are doing that we're not supposed to do. It's also the things that we ought to be doing that we won't. Adam didn't know good. He didn't know evil. He was designed to know evil. God. So much so that we're told in Genesis chapter 3 that God walked in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day. Meaning Adam and Eve had a connection to God that is unlike anything that has been seen since, but what we are all hoping for in glory one day. That we won't know good or evil anymore, we'll simply know God and his voice. Adam was supposed to respond to God's voice and trust it. But for Adam to be a free and rational being, God had to give an opportunity for him to distrust that voice. In essence, he didn't make Adam a robot, didn't make Adam an AI-driven thing. In fact, he gave Adam a choice, trust my voice or distrust it, take it or leave it. And we all know what Adam chose. I want to see what God's been holding out on me. I want to know what is good and what is evil. God warned him, at the time that you do this, death will enter the world, and Adam did it all the same. Now, some of us have trouble with the idea that the wages of sin is death. Why would God create us if he knew death would be our heritage? My six-year-old asked me this question not four weeks ago. And you know what I told him? We'll talk about it later because that's a deep question and we're going to have to talk about it later when I'm prepared after having preached it to you to talk to him about it. But really, it's quite simple. God chose to take a risk that many of you have already taken. For those of you who have been blessed enough to have children, you have taken a risk. Now there is... The possibility that children will be a source of great pride to you, a source of great joy to you, a source of great reciprocal love to you, and a comfort in your old age. Don't we all hope our kids get rich and buy us a villa? (laughs) But for many people on earth, that is not the experience that they have with children, is it? Their children end up not being a source of joy, they become a source of consternation and anxiety. Their children become a a bane to their existence because they love those children so much, yet those children want nothing to do with them any longer. Or, worst case scenario, your child marries someone that hates you. These are real things. God took the same risk that human beings take when we have children. That for the joy set before us, the joy of having kids and the possibility of fruitful and beautiful and life-giving relationship, we will create, if you will. We will, we, we will partner with God in creation, as, as Eve once said, with the help of God, I brought forth a man. We'll partner with God in the creative act, but, but there's no guarantee. Isn't it interesting that God communicates himself to us as Father? He wants that loving relationship of joy and pride and mutual interest, but he will force none of us into it. You say, well, why does the wages of sin have to be death? Well, there must be a reckoning for sin. Not only because God can't dwell with sin, and we've established that. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin and God can't coexist. They're oil and water. They cannot mesh. We know that from a theological standpoint. But sin left unreckoned runs rampant. If a child knows there will never be a comeuppance, will the child ever come around and start to do the good? Certainly not. They'll continue to run roughshod over their parents until their parents go bananas. Well, in the same way, death is the reckoning that each one of us needs to rein in our baser instincts. If there is no death and judgment, what is to ever make us say, I ought not do that. Or I ought to actually engage in making something of my life. I am immortal like the elves. And therefore, I can do whatever I want for as long as I want. We would become monsters due to sin. We wouldn't become wiser. We'd become baser, if you will. And as we saw in the story just before Noah, murder and the annihilation of the species was rampant to the point where God needed to start over. The wages of sin is death because God made a choice. But God made a choice before any of that. One that we're now going to talk about the good news. One One that he planned when he planned you. And it was to send his son for Revelation chapter 13, 8 and 1 Peter chapter 120 tell us that Jesus Christ is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Therefore, before God breathed his life into Adam's nostrils, God made a plan to redeem his wayward child. And that's what gets Paul so excited. Let's jump back in now to verse 15 and see why the free gift is greater than the trespass, why what Jesus has done is greater than the death wrought by Adam. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God, and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many." Paul's saying, it is a big deal that death entered the world. It was a bigger deal that Jesus entered the world. The free gift is not like the trespass. It's not one-to-one. Death pales in comparison to what Jesus has done. As one person put it, the ability of Adam to ruin pales in comparison of the power of Christ to save. That's what Paul's getting at. And through 15, 16, and 17, one of the rare places in the Bible, the person who put the numbers on the verses was right, he gets the three ideas that Paul is wanting to move forward to his reader to let us know just how great the work of Christ is. He says the gift isn't like the trespass, it's much more powerful. That's what Paul's getting at. So Paul here in verse 15 says it's more powerful... And he uses lots of words that we would use to denote quantity, much, many, things that we would use to say it's greater in number than the number that is resultant in death. Now, for those of you who are looking at that and saying, well, if I were to, to, to think about who will be saved and who will not be saved, I would think that just as Christ said there's a narrow path to heaven, that less people will be saved than will not be saved. Are you following me? I look at this thing and I go, I don't know about this. Christ said that the path was narrow. And so I don't know. Will will there be more people saved? If all all of human history were laid out and every single person were put in a line, would there be more people that make heaven than or that won't make heaven? And by the wording that Paul uses, he kind of implies that there'll be more people going to heaven, but that just feels like a dissonant chord to most of us. You know, you know dissonance, where, where, where two sounds on the piano don't go together, you know, because we, we have this idea that I don't know how all of salvation works all the time, but it seems to me that, that not as many people will respond to the gospel as... Don't respond to the gospel. But Paul seems to be implying that something greater has happened in Christ. So, where most theologians land is that the greater that Paul is talking about, even though he's using quantitative terms, is in value. The value of Christ's work is greater. And perhaps the best way to try to explain this would be this If I were to purchase for each one of you a beautiful dining room table, and I were to put them in the parking lot where your cars is today, and give each one of you a hammer on the way out and said, destroy the dining room table, none of you would have a problem doing it. You might all do it a little bit differently. Some of you might flip it over and start kicking the legs off. Some of you might just start pounding away. Some of you might just belly flop onto it and hope that it breaks in two like professional wrestling. I don't know how you would destroy the table, but each one of you would be capable of destroying the table. But if I then looked at you and said, now I'd like you to put the table back together and make it more beautiful than it was before. None of you would be able to do it. The work of Adam to ruin was powerful. It destroyed in many ways what is seemingly complete, completely destroyed. But the ability of Christ to go out into your parking spot, not just one parking spot, but all the parking spots, and go, whoa, what a mess. And to rebuild that table, to give it new life, put it back together in this miraculous fashion, is far greater than Adam's ability to ruin it. The power to remake it beautifully, like Christ has done, is not like the trespass. It's a far greater miracle. Now I will say, that that's the majority opinion. And I very rarely, when I stand before you in the pulpit, talk about the majority op- opinion about how to interpret Scripture and the minority opinion. I feel like that's maybe better for a classroom setting. But just for funsies today, I'll give you the minority opinion. There is a minority opinion that somehow in the grace of God that there will be a greater number of people in heaven than aren't in heaven. And when Paul says it's quantitatively greater, he meant it. Now, I don't know exactly how that works, but that is the view of some theologians. One of them is a man named F.F. F. Bruce. And I just wanted to bring this to you this morning, just so you know that that not everybody in Christianity is a monolith. We can interpret things a little bit differently, and Bruce says, Paul's using quantitative language, and I don't know how that works, but I believe that that dissonant chord will one day be resolved in a way that makes sense to all of us in eternity, meaning Christ will resolve it. You don't need to. You just do what the scripture tells you to do. So there is a minority opinion that maybe there will be more people in heaven, just like Paul seems to imply here. That what reigned in death, the much uh, death that Paul refers to, could also mean there's going to be much more life and much more redemption. Now, Bruce didn't come to that idea on his own, even though he was the number one leading Bible scholar of the 20th century, Bruce had quoted somebody far earlier that thought there'd be more people in heaven than would be out of heaven. One of the greatest theologians of the church wrote this The grace of God belongs to a greater number than the condemnation contracted by the first man. So Bruce wasn't the first one to say that it's possible somehow in God's divine economy that more people will save than will be lost. One of the greatest theologians of the church said, and I quote it again, the grace of God belongs to a greater number than the condemnation contracted by the first man. Wouldn't that be swell? Would anybody not go for that? Like, I'd go for that. You say, who was this heretic theologian who wrote that? His name was John Calvin. In 1540, in his epistles, in his commentary to the epistles to the Romans and the Thessalonians, Four years after he wrote the seminal theological work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. So just because someone's of a minority opinion doesn't mean they're absolutely wrong, right? But wouldn't it be swell if somehow God resolves the cord that the much more that Paul talks about is truly a quantitative number? Now you see the reason that I brought this book this morning, because some of you are going to want to read it, because when I came across that quote, I about fell out of my chair. That's one of the measures of how much more the work of Christ is. And I would probably side with the majority of the opinion that the work of Christ is amazing because he can put together the dining room table. That's that's, That's where I land. But I think it's possible that Christ can do far much more than we ever thought or imagined. So if I get to heaven and find out that I'm wrong, I'll be surprised and happy. Now, that's not the only greater than the work of Adam that Paul gets us to, because verse 16, he shows us another greater than in the work of Christ. Let's read verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So now we're talking about the weight of sin that Jesus overcame. Whether or not in verse 15 we're talking quality or quantity, that's something that we can debate. But what we know here is that the weight of sin is huge, and Christ has been able to overcome that. Adam sinned once and introduced the idea of sin, and we have all added to it throughout the millennia of human history. But Jesus has responded to our sin in greater measure than anything Adam ever did. Perhaps the best way to try to understand this is that that Adam turned on the garden hose of sin and the trickle of water began to come out. And each one of us turned on our garden hoses and put it into the great pool of human history and we added sin after sin after sin after trespass after trespass after trespass to the fact that we have all participated in Adam's sin and Christ's work on the cross and resurrection was great enough to stem the tide of all of that weight of sin. I laughed a while back because a a very famous group of worship writers wrote a song that talks about grace crashing over me like a wave. And I thought, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Has anybody ever had a wave crash on them and thought that was a good experience? That's not a good experience at all. No one wants to be hit by a wave and that, that, that it tosses you it, it, it discombobulates you 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 wish the wave would have been held back I mean for heaven's sakes we grew up in northeast Ohio there used to be a place called Geauga Lake anybody remember it and what did you do at one o'clock at Geauga Lake you went to the dressing rooms you put on your swim trunks and you went and stood in the wave does anybody remember this anybody I need, okay I need some first service is testifying Now, what would happen in that wave pool is that that you would get in it, and you'd go pretty close to the front, and you'd wait, I don't know, 15 minutes, a half an hour, and all of a sudden, hundreds and hundreds of people would hear this terrifying voice that says, here comes the wave. And this 20-foot wave would come from, from out of nowhere and blast each one of us back 50, 60, 75 yards, and we'd tumble over, and we'd scrape our knees and our elbows and the side of our head on the bottom of that pool, and 400-pound men would brush into us as we're doing this, and, and we would end up 150 feet back that way and go, oh, oh, ow, 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 ow. And 15 minutes later, we'd do it all over again because it was the wave, and that's just what you did. You know, that is the weight of human sin. Once you're caught in the wave, it's going to overcome you, overwhelm you, and blow you to bits. And Christ is the only one in history that can stand at the front of the wave pool and say, get behind me. The weight and wave of human sin will not overtake you you're not gonna get blasted by it, consumed by it. Adam might have turned the faucet on, and the weight of human sin over millennia might be huge enough to capture you all in its wake. But by my outstretched arms, it shall not touch you, because I can hold back the power of the wave. That's what Paul's getting at in verse 16. And if he's up in heaven today listening, I pray he approves of the analogy. Verse 17. One more greatness to the work of Christ that is greater than Adam. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So Paul says that the wages of Adam's sin and our subsequent sin is death for each one of us, but the grace of God is greater because the the net gain for humans is not that we avoid physical death, but no, we take on eternal life and we shall reign in life. Remember we talked about the hope of glory last week, the restoration of the original image of God in us, that one day we will stand in glory with God, not only in his character, but in his prerogatives, ruling and reigning with him forevermore. Here is that language once again, the grace of God is greater than than an eternal death. No, he gives us eternal life by which we are restored to what we were meant to be, which is we get to rule and reign over God's stuff the same way Adam did, except this time the dining room table is not in pieces. The dining room table's been restored to greater than it was. How much more is the grace of God that even though we participated in smashing that dining room table, even though we added our garden hose to Adam, that somehow in the beauty and the grace and the favor, the unmerited favor, the thing we didn't deserve that A.J. talked about this morning, what we didn't deserve was to be restored to a place where not only does God say, all right, I'm okay with you, you can enjoy heaven. No, he says, I love you. You are the prize, and pri- prize jewel of my creation, and I will restore you that you get to reign in life with me forever. That's what Paul's getting at, and of course, he lands there in verse 21. If you want to skip down there, that's the end of this particular section. He lets us know that that eternal life that we will reign in is ultimately what God has for us. Let's read it just for a second if you still have your Bibles, verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Our Lord, That word rain is brought back because the rain of death is nothing compared to the rain of life that salvation brings about when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. The fear of death is replaced by the hope of glory that we will stand in the presence of God and enjoy him forevermore. We're not just brought back to, I'm okay. We are brought back to, you get to partner with me in what I'm doing for eternity. Now you say, all right, Pastor Matt, you made one promise. What what links all of this together? Last week and this week, what is the grammatical construct that we need to see that is so important? And it it is present in the beginning of this chapter, and it is present in the end of this chapter, and it is present multiple times throughout the chapter, through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Over and over and over again, all the benefits that we saw last week of being saved happen through Jesus Christ, our Lord, because he is the only one that can stem the tide of death for eternity. All that we have is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You say, why is that important? Well, when I think about being right with God, and I think about having an eternal reward that God has in store for me, I need to know how to get there. I I need to know By what agency I can have all that God wants me to have? And Paul is making it abundantly clear. The work of Christ is unique. There's no one else that can make you right with God. No one else who can stem that great wave of sin only by the cross of Jesus Christ. There's no one else who loves you enough to die for you. No one else who can give you the hope of glory that you might reign in life for eternity. It is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this is something that we need to be reminded of and remind ourselves of regularly, regularly within the church. That we can get involved in a lot of good things. We can do a lot of good works and a lot of good deeds. We can get excited about a lot of the blessings and the benefits of being part of a church and knowing God. But we must never, ever derivate from the life-giving concept that all that we have, all that we are, And all that we ever hope to be comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord. All of it. He is the hope for a lost and a dying world. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except by him. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the only name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the only one in perfect obedience who could die on a cross and whose sacrifice would be strong enough to not only overcome the sin and death that is wrought in humankind, but to give us something greater on the other side of it. The mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is what a lost and a dying world needs more than any other thing. Because all the blessings and benefits of salvation come through him. And salvation itself can only be fully expressed in him as well. That's why, as a church, we remind ourselves regularly that our job is to point people to Jesus who can rewrite every life story. He's already rewritten it in eternity for those who will accept the gracious gift here on earth already rewritten it for those who love him and are called according to his good purpose. My friends, let us remind ourselves today just how great the work of Jesus is. And as we talked about last week, let us remember to speak it, to sing it, to praise him for it, so that it becomes so deeply ingrained in the fabric of our being that speaking of the one who has held back the tide of sin, giving us the chance to reign in eternal life would be old habit because of how great the work of Christ is and how much we assent to that idea in our spirit, in our heart, with our mind, ultimately to be conveyed with all our strength. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord Jesus, all that we have, all that we are, and all that we ever hope to be is wrapped up in you. You were the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, the way of escape provided for a lost and a dying humanity, and you have a gracious gift that you want to bestow upon us greater than any gift any parent loved one would ever give us and that is that we would reign in life with you for eternity regardless of the sin that we are implicated in if you're in this place today and you would say pastor matt i have not understood the importance of jesus until today I've talked about having a relationship with God. I've talked about my church. But I don't know that I've ever recognized that the gifts that are most important in this life and for eternity come through the one man, Jesus Christ. And I need to see him as Lord today. I need to give my life and service to the one who died for me. I need to go one step further in my understanding of who God is and recognize that it's through Jesus Christ that I am saved, and I've never truly asked the Lord Jesus to be my savior, to hold back the weight of human sin that would overwhelm me, to give me an eternal life that is better than any death that could be foisted upon me. If that's you today, if you're the one that's talked about God and church, but have never asked Jesus Christ to become the Lord and Savior of your life, would you just join me today in prayer? You know you need to do that. You've heard about him, and now you know about him. And I'm just going to invite you to pray your prayer after mine. I'm not going to invite anybody to repeat after me this morning. I'm just going to pray a prayer, and then I'd like you to pray your prayer if you're in that camp mean it from your heart. Lord Jesus, I just pray today that if there's anyone here who's maybe been in church, maybe begun to understand that God loves them, but has never asked you, Lord Jesus, to come into their life and be their Lord, that they would do that right now in this place. And if that's you, you just pray your prayer to him right now. And now if there's anyone in this place that would say, Pastor Matt, my life has not been pointing anyone to Jesus. And I need to remember that that is what my first and most important vocation is on this earth. And I need to tell my Lord that he will be in my heart and on my lips more than he has been. If that's you, you pray your prayer to the Lord this morning. Repent of that. Now, I would ask you if you have prayed and you are ready, would you join us in a song of benediction today? That means a good word to end church on, where we give God thanks and praise for what he's done in Jesus Christ. Would you stand? Praise the Lord, his mercy is
1: more, stronger. Darkness do every morn, our sins they are many, his mercy is more What love could remember no wrongs we have done. Omnish and all-knowing He counts not their sum Thrown into the sea without bottom or shore Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Let's sing that third verse. What riches of kindness, what riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment, his life was the cause. We stood neath the dead, we could never afford
2: Lord Jesus, we thank you that through you, we know everything we need to know, have everything we need to have, and look forward to everything that God has for us. We praise your name today. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been glad to spend this last hour and seven minutes with you this morning. One quick announcement before you leave the place today, if you are a gentleman and you came in today, you received a save-the-date for our 22nd, 4th, 5th, 29th annual men's retreat. We would love for you to join us if you are a gentleman on this trip. It is one of the most fun weekends of the year, and if you have any questions about it, one of our elders, Bill Anderson, who has looked after this project for every year since the start of it, would love to talk to you. Bill, can you give everybody a wave? If you have questions about our men's retreat and a little bit more about it, we'd love for you to see Bill. God bless you.